So I have a little mini message for you all to close out today. I want to tell you all my favorite Harvard story. And before I tell it, I want to acknowledge that, yes, that does feel like the most obnoxious opening line that I've ever said (laughs) to start a message. I didn't think I would have a Harvard story when I was a kid. I grew up, some of you know a little bit about my story and my background. I grew up in King of Prussia. I went to Upper Marion High School. Not a very great high school, not a very bad high school, just kind of a local school where a lot of people didn't go to elite universities, but a lot of people went on to study after high school. But I lived in one of those households, like Maria and Kate were mentioning, where my parents were pretty consumed with the essentials. They didn't have a lot of time outside of their own issues to support what I was going through. And they also didn't know much about the college process. My dad didn't go to college. My mom lived at home. She paid her way through Wilkes up in the Scranton-Wilkesbury area. And she was the first person in her family to ever get a bachelor's degree. So when it came time for me to think about my future, I didn't have anybody in my family who was helping me navigate that path. I'm lucky that in my life, The role of mentor was filled by a lot of my friends' parents. The network that you all have, if you have kids with their friends, is really important. And I had a friend who happened to have a mom who went to nearby Swarthmore College who told me, you're really smart. You could go to a place like this, and they have the money there that they'll pay for you to go if you get in. And I was like, that sounds like a sweet deal, right? So my college list made no sense. Now that I've grown up and know a little bit about how this works, I was looking at places like University of Delaware. Um, I was looking at other state schools, other local schools, and then I had Swarthmore College on there, this very selective, expensive private college. But I got in. And that really changed my life, to be honest, in some ways that are good and some ways that have disconnected me from where I came from. It's a really complicated thing to get into a different kind of educational experience that puts you in touch with people who grew up in a very different socioeconomic class than you did. I saw a lot more of the world. I saw it for good and for bad. And it's given me a perspective, though, that I never would have had if I had stayed in my little part of southeastern Pennsylvania, even though Swarthmore is in southeastern Pennsylvania. But Swarthmore gave me the opportunity to study abroad. It gave me the opportunity to have my resume at the top of the pile when I applied to jobs right after college in D.C. And it gave me the opportunity to go to Harvard for divinity school. So on my first day at Harvard Divinity School, they had one of those big formal things where they put a tent out on the lawn and they gave us a lot of free food. And they welcomed us officially as first-year students. They gave a lot of speeches that I don't remember. I think the president of the university came out, the dean of the divinity school. They all gave those kind of welcome speeches that their assistant probably printed out for them that morning, the same file that they give every year, and they changed the date, and then they added a comment about whatever the weather was like that day, right? (laughs) But every first-year class had a different faculty speaker that would rotate through. 
And our year, the faculty speaker was a man named David Carrasco, this guy right here. David Carrasco is a professor at the Divinity School. He's a Mexican-American historian of Latin American religion. And he had a background where he didn't grow up thinking he would ever not only be at Harvard, but be teaching at Harvard. I remember very little of what was said at that opening ceremony. But I remember perfectly one thing that David said to all of us. He said, I don't want you to forget this. You were somebody before you got to Harvard. You were somebody before you got to Harvard. I think there's a lot of pressure in our world to make it. And there's often a very specific narrative that we're fed about what making it looks like. And it really isn't an untrue narrative, right? It's just shaped by the way that we've structured our world. We've set up our world to make work and productivity and money very necessary for our survival. And all my life, I'd been brought up with these stories of how that worked, right? With the story, the larger cultural story we tell about the American dream, which is really all about securing enough of that wealth for yourself and your family to be stable and safe. And we all want to be stable and safe. I had immigrant great-grandparents. I had grandparents who worked in coal mines and sewed in factories. And I had grandparents who served their country in World War II fighting Nazis. And I had parents, one who couldn't afford community college after her first semester, and then my mother, like I said, who scraped her way through. My family lived the American dream. And everything in my entire world told me that being educated was the key to a happy life, to having financial security and status and reputation. So that was what I was made for. That was what I was made to strive to do. This is how I would make my way in the world and make myself. I love that Professor Carrasco reminded us at the precise moment we each might have felt that we finally made it, that we mattered long before that, that each of us mattered just by being here, that each of us, as we teach here at Wellsprings, is valuable and worthy, and none of us has to earn that worth and that belovedness. Each of us has that same gift of human hearts beating in our chests, the spark of the divine, like we say every morning here. He was trying to help us see that, yes, the world does have that pretty strict definition for who's somebody, and we all know somewhere in our mind what that looks like and what that is. And sometimes we have to do what we've got to do and play along with that game just to survive in the world that we live in. Especially if we weren't born into somebody kind of status. But there is a deeper world that we also live in. A truer world. Where all of us is somebody. There have always been people here at Wellsprings, because I know you all, who have cared about showing up for the people who weren't born into a somebody kind of status. And our community partnership with Chester County Futures has always been a part of that collective commitment. But in the past few years, I've noticed 
collectively that we've done something that Josie talked about this morning. We've been a little more awake, I think, as a whole community here at Wellsprings. We've shown up as a group at rallies for peace, at vigils for remembrance. We showed up for women's equality after the election. We've shown up at local festivals for trans rights and LGBTQ rights. We've shown up at marches resisting community violence in Philadelphia. And we have another opportunity now at the end of September to show up for racial justice. Our youth spirit program has organized projects with our kids. In the last couple years, we've been supporting veterans who were left to fend for themselves after sacrificing their lives to serve our country and defend it. We've sent expressions of care from our kids to children living detained indefinitely in nearby Bucks County because our country, sadly, can't seem to make up its mind about whether immigrants are welcome here or not. And so people are kept in limbo. Our whole community has joined together to support our Muslim neighbors in Westchester as we have begun to notice that there are people with big microphones out there telling stories about their religion that are not true. And our addictions and recovery team for a long time has been leading us to a place where conversations about drugs and addiction and recovery are not whispered about in our community, where we can talk openly and honestly, and where, importantly, we can each walk into the rest of our lives not whispering about those same things. And now we actually have a new team called Justice Works that's getting organized to help us pass on this collective energy and do more of this together to pull together the power of our many individual sparks so that we can all have an impact that grows. And the thing that I love the most about all of what I've seen at Wellsprings for how we care about people who are not just here, but also people who are beyond our doors, is that ever since the beginning, for some reason, we've thought about acting locally. We've thought about who is right here in our area. And I love that because I think we see the news and we see so often the things that are happening far away and we feel so helpless about how to respond. But the first step of any big change, any kind of change in our lives, is transforming ourselves and then the closest relationships we have with the people around us, the communities that are right here. I'm reading a book right now that is my favorite book I've read in a very long time, It's not about church, believe it or not. It's called Emergent Strategy. It's by an author named Adrian Marie Brown. It just came out in April. It's a book about exploring a new way to inspire change at this particular moment in our country based on an approach called biomimicry. Any of you ever heard of that before, biomimicry? The idea of biomimicry basically just means that there's all this stuff out there that humans have not been able to figure out with all of our machines and all of our brain power and our powers of reason and our systems. So what if instead we looked at the natural world around us for wisdom? What if we studied how ecosystems and plants and animals and cellular life forms all organize themselves to live and to thrive and to overcome problems? and then adapted what we learned from them to our own situations. One of the coolest examples that the author of this book uses is looking at how a flock of starlings works together, the way that they move, the way that they organize themselves to get somewhere. 
Has anybody ever Googled flock of starlings? Or they call it a murmuration. That's how they move. This is a suggestion to go home and Google. Look at a YouTube video of how these birds fly. They billow out and they dive and they spin and they dance together collectively through the air to avoid predators for a practical reason, she says. And also, it seems to pass time in the most beautiful way possible. Fish move this way, too. It's called shoaling. Bees and other insects do it. And when they do it, it's called swarming. How it works is that each individual bird is tuned in to its neighbors. The creatures right around it in the formation. It might just be the bird on either side. Or it might be the six fish in each direction. There is a right distance between them. If they're too close, they'll crash. If they're too far, they can't feel those micro-adaptations. They won't notice what's going on if they're too far away. Each creature is shifting direction and speed and proximity based on the information from the other creatures' bodies. And then a mass network of mutual trust and care allows thousands of these birds or fish or bees to move together, each one empowered on their own with these basic rules. But no one bird ever bears the burden alone of figuring out the next move or muscling towards it. What happens when we care for just our neighbors can have an impact far beyond us. I had a conversation with a friend once that I'll never forget about a big figure, one that is so larger than life now, unfortunately, that sometimes we forget how human he was, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., And my friend pointed out to me, you know, it's not like he woke up one morning and set out to become the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Nobody handed him an invitation that said, here is your journey ahead of you to become an American hero. Please RSVP and let us know what quotes you'd like on your monument, right? He didn't set off to do that. He set off to school in Boston to become a minister. And then he moved back home to the South to take a job in Montgomery, Alabama, which isn't where he wanted to be. He wanted to be in Atlanta, where he grew up, where his father's church was, where he thought things were really happening. But he ended up in Montgomery, and then somebody asked him to lead this local bus boycott project. That's how his journey to become the man that we know him as began. It was all about something that was happening right close by to him. Two weeks ago, I had the privilege of going to the College and Career Expo that Chester County Futures hosted, where all of their students from ninth grade through 12th grade were talking to employers and to colleges about their futures. And the keynote speaker at that event shared a message with the kids that I absolutely loved. He said, the things that you will get in pursuing this education, please remember that they're not just for you. He said, go back to give back after you're done. That's right. Go back to give back. Yeah, I think Professor Carrasco realized that the danger in becoming somebody 
which there's nothing wrong with that. But the danger in becoming somebody is that we can begin to forget about everybody. And so I'm proud that we're remembering everybody here at Wellsprings, that we have a practice of remembering everybody. I'm proud that we're finding ways to do it that don't burn us out, but that do call us to follow the spark that we see right in front of us. So may we stay committed. This will not be easy. May we resist feelings of hopelessness when they crop up. May we resist the shame that's visited upon us by our own high expectations for what we hope to see. And may we resist the voices that try to tell us that the way this world works is that it's every man for himself. Because we're here in this community because we know that's not true. Together might we follow that spark and make it a bigger flame. Amen. And may you live in blessing. Let's pray together. God of our hearts, voice of the spark that speaks to us when we are scared. feeling of the comfort that comes to us, the energy that shows up when we think we can't go on, grace of the gift of a friend or a stranger who shows up at just the right time with just what we need. May that holy energy be something that we always keep our eyes open for. May we remember that we can't control it as much as we wish we could. But may we keep the faith and keep our eyes open for it so that we never miss a gift when it's coming. The prayers I've spoken out loud and for the prayers that each of these people carries on their hearts, we say amen.